Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Da Silva, and joining me today is David Morton. Thank you so much for being here, David. It's nice to see you. My, yeah, my pleasure. It's great to join you. So today, um, we spoke on the phone, I, I, it's probably been about a month ago at this point, um, and we just kind of chit-chat a little bit and got to know each other. And so for today, I think we're just going to kind of, we have um, your line of work and some of the stuff that I've been reading about, there's a lot of common ground there. So I think we're just going to just kind of have a conversation and just let the ideas flow and hopefully some good stuff. <laughs> Sounds like an adventure. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, so just start us off. Uh, what, what exactly is it that you do for a living? So I'm what's called an actuary, uh, which is a career that uh, very few people have actually heard of. Um, by, by background, I studied math in university. It's, it's a lot of calculus, a lot of statistics. And essentially, actuaries are professionals that are dealing with risk. And, and the type of risk I deal with are risks associated with pension plans. Uh, and, and the primary risk there is mortality. So if you think about it, the longer someone lives, the more money they need to be able to provide for their retirement or the more their company needs if, if it's the company providing a pension. And so actuaries generally generally sort of look at, look at large or look after large pension plans, uh, helping them manage the, the assets and the liability side. So the liability side is essentially the, the value of what they, the, the plan has promised to, to the employees or the plan members. Um, the asset side is the money that the company, let's say, is putting aside to to cover the uh, the benefits being promised to people. Um, and and in the in the pension world, there are really two schools of of thinking in terms of how pension benefits are offered. Uh, actuaries traditionally work in what's called the defined benefits space, which is where essentially a, a company or a pension plan will promise to pay you an income for life after you retire. Uh, so think Canada pension plan, for example, you know, you work in Canada for a prolonged period of time. At some point down the road, the government will pay you a monthly income for as long as you're alive. A lot of companies will actually do that too, governments, things like that. Um, the other type of pension plan that actuaries tend not to work with quite as much as defined contribution. Um, which is essentially like an RFP where you put money away, it accumulates with investment return, and you got this big pot of money for when you retire, you withdraw bits and pieces as you need them to pay groceries, buy your boat, whatever it happens to be, um, and you hope that the money is going to last as long as, as you need it to. Um, actuaries don't generally, they, they aren't as needed in that, that defined contribution space, but that happens to be one area of my own specialty, just in, in the type of consulting I do. I've branched off, and I, I still do a lot of defined benefit work, but I also focus on defined contribution plans. Which is which is a little bit different. Um, so I work for a, I work for a consulting firm, uh, which essentially means that that companies that sponsor pension plans will hire us to help them get the most out of their pension plan, in essence. And so we'll try to make sure that the the money they're putting into the plan is is turning into benefits that are you know that are affordable over the long term, and yet helping employees be able to afford to retire. Um, that, that's in a nutshell what actuaries do. As you can imagine, they don't get invited to uh, cocktail parties an awful lot, but, uh, but we're a fun crew. It sounds interesting to me, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to say that. You're the host. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> well, and that was the, the thing that when we spoke, whenever that was at this point, yeah. um, which was, well, and your background, what, you mentioned your bath, blah, background was in uh, mathematics. Right. Yeah. And from university and when you were in high school, um, when did you kind of figure this path? Because, you know, it's one of those things that I have heard of. I've heard the, the 
title or the name actuary, but I actually never knew what it was until I spoke to you recently. Um, But like you said, very few people have even heard of it at all. So just wondering how that kind of came to be. Yeah, so I think I was pretty unusual um, because I decided I wanted to be an actuary right in in high school. I think I was in grade nine and I decided this is what I wanted to pursue for a living. And, and when I set my mind to something, I'm usually pretty determined. Um, <clears throat> but I was fortunate because my mom had worked in insurance when she was younger. She's not an actuary, but she had heard of what actuaries were. And and she she knew it's a, it's a career that's got some decent upside potential, um, you know, good work-life balance, generally decent compensation package for, you know, safe, uh, decent uh, probability of employment, things like that, job security. Uh, and then she thought, you know, this is what, what, it's it's something that people who are good at math can go after, and so she helped educate me on the on the profession, and, and I decided to pursue it. But if I think back to university, I was definitely the minority of the group that I was studying with. Um, so my classmates were all studying what's called actuarial science, which is what you study at at school if you want to become an actuary. And I would say eighty percent of them kind of landed there by a meandering course. Uh, Some may have found a high school math teacher who suggested, oh, you're good at math, maybe consider being an actuary. A lot of them just came to university, started studying math, and and some way through first year, um, found it as, you know, a a course that was listed in the program guide. Back then, it was all paper books. And uh, and someone said, oh, yeah, let me try that course, and then decided to pursue a career in it. Um, But for me, it was pretty early on that I decided I was interested. And with that, but, you know, it's funny because it, it's one of those things that, yeah, your job deals with numbers and math and all that, but it, it sounds like you, there's a lot of interpersonal interaction as well in order to get the job done. Can you just go into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like a lot of careers. The early stages of the career are spent learning the ropes, if you will, learning the technical aspects of whatever it is that you happen to be doing, you know, whether it's an engineer, whether it's a carpenter, whatever it is, it's it's learning the skills of the trade. Uh, and, and actuarial science is no different. So the first X years of my career, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years, were spent learning, learning the legislation that applies, learning more of the math, learning how we manage pension plans. But then gradually over time, you, you sort of grow out of that role into more of a managerial role where you're now training the new, the new recruits who have to learn all that stuff and, and also trying to manage client relationships. Because as with any business, it's about you know, trying, to, trying to get companies to want to work with you. And once you're working with them, to want them to keep working with you. Uh, actuarial relationships tend to be relatively long term. Um, so, so we have some clients in, in my office where they've been clients of, of my company for over 60 years. Uh, so they really, you know, that, that's uncommon, but, but not, not necessarily unheard of. So it, it's all about building relationships and, and trying to make sure that, that you and the client's interests are aligned so that you want to keep working together in a way that's mutually beneficial. And, and that really is where my career has taken me. So instead of focusing on, on the numbers and, and the, the technical calculations now, I spend most of my day just working with people, either people internally to help them do their job as well as they can, or externally trying to either keep my clients happy or, or you know, deliver, deliver results to them, or for that matter, reaching out to, to prospective clients and trying to convince them why they should be working with me instead of one of our competitors. And balancing that dichotomy between, um, like how you mentioned, like when you're first starting, obviously it's a little more on the technical side, like you actually have to just understand what the hell it is that you're actually doing. And then once you get that down, then, okay, then we can sort of get into the more um, interaction side of it. Um, 
but for you, was was there ever I'm trying to figure out how to frame this? But how did you kind of navigate that between? Was it just sort of a natural progression for you, or was there people um, either in your company who kind of mentored you to teach you, like, hey, this is sort of the best way to do things? Uh, so you're absolutely right. That is a real dichotomy, and it can be a challenge for a lot of people. Uh, the, the type of person who tends to be very good at that technical side is not necessarily the type of person who's very good at the skills that are needed later. I think from my perspective, I was probably fortunate in the sense that I was, I mean, I was fine at the technical side, but I wasn't the best out there at the technical side. I think my skill set lay more in relationship management, communication, organization, things that have served me well later in my career. So for me, it was, it was more of a transition through the early stages so that I could get to what I knew I was going to enjoy most. Uh, and, and the fact that it happens to be working as an actuary that allowed me to get there, it almost didn't matter. You know, I, I probably would have enjoyed it working as an engineer, working as an accountant, working as a lawyer. There are lots of different ways I could have got there. I chose the actuarial route because I was good in math. Um, but there are other people who have a different struggle. They're, they're very bright, very able to learn technical concepts quickly. They, they race through that technical stage and then find they almost run out of things to learn. And, and what's required for them to keep progressing is a very different skill set. And, and it can be quite disappointing to realize that. Uh, and it can also be quite disappointing from an employer's perspective to realize that you've hired someone who's a genius but can't talk to people without you know, looking at their feet. The joke that, uh, that actuaries like to say is you can tell an introverted actuary from an extroverted actuary because an extroverted actuary will look at your toes when they're talking to you instead of looking at their own toes. Um, <laughs> and that really is based on history. And I think the profession is coming along, but, but there were days where actuaries were these really sort of nerdy eggheads who would sit in the back room, do all their calculations, but prefer not to talk to people. Um, and, and luckily we've, I think, got past that. I think the profession has done a good job in trying to uh, shape the way the, the profession is, is attracting people and developing people. And, and organizations have realized that that doesn't cut it anymore. So they're focusing on different ways to recruit also. Um, but, it, but it does make for an interesting journey along the way because the two skill sets are just so radically different. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Dragon's Den and Shark Tank. I guess because it's basically the same concept, which is whenever they have someone who's an inventor and they come in with their product or whatever it may be, and they'll say like, your product is phenomenal, but you are the worst business person ever. Yes. <laughs> and it's hard yeah. to work with someone like that because like they're trying to, they're investing their money in you. And it's like, well, okay, but you don't know what the hell you're doing when it comes to the, yep. the business side of it. But that's, but that's important because it does show like, yeah, like there is that, and, and there are, it is a, they're, they're two different skill sets. And, and it's funny too, because even in law, like I was actually talking to a friend of mine two days ago and we had the, well, we talked for like three and a half hours. So we talked about a lot of stuff, but one of the things that we talked about was, um, you know, like people we know who just brilliant legal minds like they just have this insane ability to be uh, like on the research side like they just they see things that we just couldn't but our strengths would be but we can stand up and actually talk about it in front of people and they you know couldn't do that so it's, it is funny too like and I think that's with most professions though like I think you know if you just think about 
you know, even any type of trade, if you know, you can be very technical, but then when it comes to the execution side, the practicality of it, if you mm-hmm. lack, mm, not going to work out well for it. You know, you kind of. No, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're bang on, you know, carpenters, plumbers, they'll all, they, they all need to know their trade in order to get ahead. And yet at some point, unless they're happy to just keep doing that for the rest of their careers, at some point they want to branch out and, and look for opportunities to, to run a business, sell, you know, sell the business in terms of try to expand it and, and get other opportunities. And, and that, that is a very different skill set than fitting pipes or, or wires or whatever it happens to be. So, and how long <clears throat> yeah. Have you been an actuary for now? So I've, I've been working 27 years, but the way the profession works is you don't just sort of become an actuary right out of school. Uh, there's a, a series of professional exams you have to have to pass. And the exam process typically takes somewhere between eight and 10 years. So I think technically I became an actuary when I was 30 um, and I'm 49 now. So I guess I've, I've been an actuary for 19 of those 27 years. And that's, you go high school, <laughs> undergrad, university. Did you go to university here? Uh, no, I went to the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Okay. Yeah. And then after that, uh, after your undergrad degree, do you then just go into those exams or is there another stepping stone? <clears throat> no, typically after after university, you'll, you'll complete your undergrad and then just go get a job and, and you'll sort of do a job full time while also writing, studying and, and writing actuarial exams, the professional exams. Uh, most actuarial employers like insurance companies and consulting firms will offer study programs where you get you know, a certain number of days off every exam you write to study. It's not nearly enough uh, unless you're exceptionally <laughs> bright for the you know, 90% of them, it's not enough. So you're using up your own time as well. So I think a lot of actuaries would look back and say they missed a lot of their 20s because they were spent studying. Um, and, and the exam system has changed over the years, but when I did it, there were essentially two sittings a year, uh, May and November. And so for the three or four months leading up to each of those, actuaries would be people you wouldn't, or actuarial students would be people you wouldn't see on weekends. They wouldn't come out in the evenings. They'd be going to work, then going home and studying and studying on the weekend. So it, it makes for a pretty drab existence in your 20s. But, you know, like, like anything else, I guess, you're rewarded at the end. You, you have good job security and a, and a rewarding career. So um, it, was, it was worth it for me, but, but there are lots of people who drop out along the way because they just decide that it's, it's not for them. Well, and it's a grind. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely, you know, you have to be determined to get through that for sure. No, you absolutely do. And I mean, the, the, the way I describe to, sometimes I go to, you know, career days or things like that to help high school students decide what they want to do and are they considering a career in, as an actuary. And the way I describe it is you have to be very careful in thinking about yourself, be very realistic in thinking about your math skills. Um, essentially, the, the type of people who go to university to study math are generally the top one or two from each class in high school. And then when you take that university group of all the top one or two from each high school class, probably only 20% of them will actually make it on to completing the, the professional exams. They, they really are quite, quite draining. And so you start to think that is a very, very small group. I, I was going to say selective group, but that, that leaves you with the wrong impression that it's only the best to get through that. That's not necessarily the case. Some people just find other interests along the way where they don't have to sacrifice their 20s. Um, but certainly it, it's, I think I, I've certainly met over the years, people who were good in math in high school, who probably had no business pursuing actuarial science. Like they're just not quite there. Um, they're, they're comfortable in math, but, but that's, that's a bit different from, from the commitment you need to, to pursue that as a, as a career. You did touch on it a little bit earlier, but I'll bring you back to that, which was, so you've been doing this for a while and how much has, or, or what 
changes have you noticed in the industry just as far as the people themselves, like the skill development and, and maybe the, um, the emphasis on particular skills? Yeah. So it's, it's been huge. When I started, and I started working full-time in 1994, um, I remember the senior actuaries at the time would describe the preceding decade as being kind of like the heyday of, of actuaries because there was so much work and so few actuaries were being produced out of the universities that essentially clients would call or potential clients would call and beg you to do the work for them because they just couldn't find an actuary and there are legal requirements to do certain types of things that, that actuaries have to do. So clients were literally falling all over themselves and you could almost quote any price and get work. <laughs> and so these were not necessarily actuaries who were very good at selling. They weren't necessarily good at, at maintaining client relationships. They didn't even need to be all that friendly or, or trustworthy necessarily. Necessarily. I mean, I think actuaries as a whole have a fairly high professional standard, but, but they didn't need to as individuals per se. They just needed to adhere to their professional standards. And, and that changed over the years because, you know, as you can imagine, in that type of environment, it led to great profits and, and great, great salaries for actuaries. And so a lot of people were drawn to the profession. As the profession stabilized, those sort of backroom nerdy number crunchers who were just happy to, to be able to charge whatever they felt they needed to to get the work done um, found the, the environment very different. And they started, I mean, the profession really started to need people who were better communicators, people who were better salespeople in a sense, although I think the profession isn't thinking of it that way, but, but people who can present themselves well and, and who can make it clear how they can help organizations succeed, whatever that means for them. And, and that really, I think, reshaped, firstly, what actuaries needed to be in order to be successful. And then eventually, the profession started to catch up and started to say, okay, instead of creating exams that are just speed tests for the smartest four people in the room to pass, because they can answer you know, 500 questions and no one else could, uh, we need to make it about softer skills. So they started introducing um, skill sets like project management as part of the curriculum. They started to introduce presentation skills as part of the curriculum to really try and make sure that the people that were popping out of the process at the other end were actually useful to employers. But it took a while for them to catch up. And I'd say they're, they're actually still working through it. Um, and, and doing, I think, good things in terms of, for example, don't retest people on things they learned in school. If they went to a reputable university and got 80% and above in a statistics course, assume they know that. Don't test them again. Let's instead focus on something else. Let's focus on how well they can, you know, analyze a situation for challenges and, and test them on that, because that will certainly help them more than memorizing a, a theory, a series of statistical formulas that these days are done by Excel or some other program. I mean, we, none of us are really actually sitting down crunching numbers, right? It's all computerized. You have to understand the numbers, but we're not actually doing it. So uh, the profession, I think, is, is doing a pretty good job of catching up somewhat belatedly. And that's, I was thinking that when you were uh, speaking there, I'm like, yeah, like we're 2021 right now. Like they're computers, <laughs> you know, like you got to remember like, yeah, like there's computers to do this stuff. So it's, it's funny too, because I wonder if it's, well, and I'll, I'll pose this to you. Was it a situation where as technology advanced, then all of a sudden uh, employers realize okay, so the time that we used to spend on particular tasks are covered by technology. So we got to start filling these other skill, uh, the gaps in other skills 
Was that how that sort of developed or was it just kind of more with just the fact that the profession was sort of evolving in general? I think it's a little bit of both. I certainly do think that certain tasks that actuaries uh, do routinely became quicker because more, you know, computers became more powerful. The computer could do more. Um, whereas, you know, when I when I first started, we didn't even have a. This is going to date me, but we didn't have a, a, a desktop computer. There was a mainframe terminal down the hall. And, and you had to book time to go and use that to run programs. Then you'd get the printout, you'd come back to your desk and you'd, you'd work on that on your, at your desk you know, with a calculator. Um, and, and I know this probably sounds a long time ago for you, but, but I don't feel that old. And, and yet, you know, it, it's <laughs> at the beginning of my career. So I think there were aspects of our jobs that got quicker, but I really think what evolved over time was more the level of refinement in what we do. So instead of having to simplify, uh, and, and what might I mean by simplify, let's say you have a, a, a company that has a thousand employees and you're trying to calculate pension liabilities for a thousand people. Back in the day, you might lump people together in groups and kind of come up with, instead of a thousand people, maybe you have 50 people who are each representative of a group of 20, you know, something like that. Um, and then you'd run those 50 people through a program because the program would take forever, even for those 50 sets of calculations. Whereas now we can have 10,000 people and do it in Excel. We don't even need some, some big program, for example. Um, so that allowed us to, to refine the calculations. And it, it goes to another level that I, that I won't bore you with. But, but suffice it to say, I think we've become much better at, at calculating the numbers than we were before. There's less variability around that. There's less noise. We're, we're a, a bit more accurate, although it's funny because I think we sometimes get to a point where some actuaries sometimes try to refine their calculations so much that, that I personally think it's, it's getting a bit silly. The, the analogy I like to use is, is if you're shooting a rifle in the dark, it really doesn't matter how finely tuned your scope is. It's not helping you. And actuaries are trying to predict things that are happening, you know, 50, 60, 70 years down the road. You know, if you look at yourself, you're, you're young. Let's say you're in a pension plan. Well, you're going to work for 30 or 40 years. Then you're going to be retired for another 30 years. So we're trying to predict the pension that will eventually be payable to you in 40 years, and then will continue to be paid for another 30 years after that. So but at that stage, I mean, we're, we're really I don't want to say guessing, but there's a lot of variables at play. Uh, you know, how long are people going to live then? We know how long people live now with great accuracy, but what could evolve? How will medical science change? How will other things change? Um, and, and there are enough, I would argue, there are enough variables in that um, that would lead me anyway to say, we don't need to keep refining the calculation. It's, it's getting to be a bit of a shot in the dark. Let's just make sure it makes sense so that we can help employers plan for it. It's not essential that the number 70 years from now be accurate. It's essential that it be pretty accurate for the next 10 years so they can plan you know, for their business and understand what costs they're exposing themselves to. And then we'll just refine as we go along. It reminds me, <clears throat> what you're saying reminds me of a, I'm trying to think, it was, so it was a Jordan Peterson lecture, but I can't remember, I think it was a personality lecture. So I think it was one of those ones. And he was talking about um, predictability of the future. And as you, and this was more like um, through the context of uh, life planning, I suppose you could say. So that was the, the framework for that. And it was, do my best for this one. But he was saying that the, the conundrum with that is the further you go into the future, unpredictability is itself unpredictable. Right. So you, there, it becomes difficult. And I always think of it in the frame of, well, COVID's a bit of a, you're, you're 
swinging at a low fruit on that one. But, you know, <laughs> but if you just think in general, like when you were, well, anybody, when you're graduating university, and I always think like, actually, this is a good one. When I always watch um, on TV shows or anything like that, where you'll see, you know, whatever the character getting interviewed for a job and it'll be, oh, where do you see yourself in five years or, or ten year, a 10 year plan? And I always think of that, like, if I ever do get asked that question, it's like, that's such a weird question to ask. Like, how, like, what exactly do you want to know for that? Because you're going so far, like so much can change. Like I yeah. could get hit by a bus in a week. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just one of those things. It is very interesting. And, and in a slightly different context, one of the statistics, well, statistics, I don't think it's an actual statistic, but one of the predictions that I hear quoted on a moderately regular basis is talking about what we call the future of work. You know, what does what does workforce look like in 20 years? And, and one way that people will describe it is to say, roughly half of the jobs that the people in elementary school today will do don't even exist yet. Um, and that sounds a bit strange, like half, half the population are going to be doing things that didn't exist, uh, you know, today. And yet, you know, you don't have to go that far back. It's probably only, I don't know how far back, but five or 10 years and things like, you know, wind turbine engineer and, and solar panel engineer, all these things that, that really weren't a thing 10 years ago. And, and they're clearly going to be the future. Uh, so you can see how, how quickly things evolve. But yeah, that, that definitely is, is a challenge in, in our profession. Um, and in fact, one of the courses we, well, I don't know if it's still part of the, the curriculum, but one of the courses I had to take, there was a portion on it on something called futurism, basically trying to help people understand how to try and, and delve that far into the future. And, and moreover, I mean, because obviously we don't have crystal balls, but moreover, ways in which you can catch yourself thinking too traditionally. How can you challenge yourself? And, you know, some of them are quite simple. Just try to think about a scenario of how something could happen. How could all of mankind end up staying at home for 18 months? Well, we now know the example of that, but you know, maybe <laughs> we wouldn't have thought about that two years ago. Um, but that type of you know, role playing or, or scenario playing and, and other ways to test things just to, just to think about it. Um, but you know, one, one illustration of that is if you think about, I mentioned before, talking about how mortality evolves over time. Um, it's natural to assume that mortality will continue to improve because it certainly has improved over the last millennia. It's consistently improved, you know, over that period. Um, and and one of the things that has driven the improvements in mortality over the last 50 years is the degree to which people in the Western world, anyway, have stopped smoking. But if you continue to take that trend and project into the future without really thinking about what's causing the improvement in mortality, what you'll essentially have assumed is that eventually a negative percentage of the population smokes, which of course is impossible. So, so people who are trying to project that far in the future have to know what the drivers are so they know when to stop allowing for those drivers to improve. Um, and, and there are other aspects that aren't quite as obvious, but maybe you know, human tissue only has a certain reasonable expectation of, of longevity. And at some point, bones may just begin to crumble, for example. And so maybe we won't be dying of cancer. Maybe we won't be dying of heart attacks. But at some point, maybe the bones will just cease to be able to resist gravity. And so there are, there are people far smarter than I, I'm sure, that, that will you know, think about that in, in terms of developing mortality tables way down the road. So it's really quite an interesting quite an interesting area when you hear people talk about it, just the way they think and the way they, they try to, you know, come up with scenarios that could cause the world to be extremely different than it is today. 
Um, that's that's certainly not my area of expertise. I, I, I'm fairly narrow-minded. I, I sort of picture what we see and, and see it through to the end without challenging it necessarily. But it's interesting to hear that type of person talk. For whatever reason, when you're talking about that, I, uh, like bone, bone decay and stuff, I'm like, for whatever reason, I'm like a Justice League popped into my head. I'm like, sounds like some Superman, Batman thing going on. I'm like, yeah, it's interesting. I bet, yeah, that's not a bad way to picture the future. Go see superheroes and science fiction movies and see yeah. what they predict. Absolutely. Oh, but I, actually i want to back you up to um that so that futurism it was it was called futurism that was the the sort of area of study yes i don't know if that's still what it's called but yeah it was called futurism and there are there are people called futurists who specialize in this type of um sort of study and and they're generally people who have very diverse backgrounds so they're not specialists in any one field but rather they're they're generalists who see patterns and, and kind of can understand how things can be radically shaped. Um, and so, you know, the, the global financial crisis was, was a bit of an example of that, where it's something that the vast majority of, of financial models that, that many organizations use to assess risks in investments and mortgages and things like that just didn't contemplate that such a scenario could exist. But people who were not specialists in that could have perhaps said, well, what if, you know, a lot of housing price drops and blah, 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 and, and people just walk away from their mortgages? Is it possible that this whole system collapses? The specialists would all say, oh, no, that could never happen. There's too much value in real estate and people have to live somewhere. Why would you give up something that's got value? But, but someone who actually isn't a, isn't a specialist in that, but is good at asking questions, probing, sort of poking at assumptions and saying, are we sure? You know, is, is there a scenario where that could exist? And if there is, let's assign some probability to that other than zero, because that's what a lot of people do, right? They, they sort of think about the, the 50 to 60% of what happens most and ignore the tail ends of the distribution as though their, their probability is zero. Well, it's not zero, it's just unlikely, but, but every day billions of things happen in the world. So even things that only happen once in a billion times, they're happening. You just, you know, you don't see them a lot. So yet, but if you really want to look at the extremes to try and manage risks, which tend to happen out in those extremes, you need to be able to think about that. So futurists, those are the ones you need to find. <laughs> <laughs> well, that really reminds me, if you think of pretty much any sport, I'm trying to think basketball, football, hockey is a good one. I suppose you could do it a little bit with like, like UFC or fighting, but when you talk about, cause I know everybody, that's kind of the annoying thing about sports now. It's like, everybody is the greatest of all time, arguably the greatest of all time. It's like, I, I don't know if you're going to say you're the greatest of all time, there's one, this one person, but whatever, <laughs> that's a, that's a different topic. But the thing with that, which tying back to what you just said was you can't. Okay. So Chicago bulls um, with the Jordan era, the fact that they had the three-peat, so they won three, 91, 92, 93, that basically was just complete. like, I think the Celtics did it back in the 70s or whatever, but the fact that it happened in the 90s was just, wow, like that, no one ever could think that would happen. And then, you know, MJ retires, goes to play baseball, comes back, does it again, <laughs> you know, does it again. And it's like, oh yeah, well, of course. But when you, before it happens, no one thinks it's possible, but then it becomes possible because someone did it. And then that right. becomes- And the then everyone looks back and says, well, yeah, that of course it's possible when you're that good. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's just, it, it's so funny like that. And I, I believe, I can't remember the source for this. So I, I hope the source is not my imagination. Hopefully it's based in stuff that I read or something, but a uh, quick Google search, I'll do that after this, which is apparently in the, I believe it was the Bush administration after 9-11 so I'm not, I think it was a few years after, if my memory, you know, we'll figure it out after, but they brought in a, I think it was a handful of movie, like Hollywood producers, writers, directors, and they basically had a meeting and they just said, okay, tell us how you can envision America being attacked again or, or yeah. at a world state, a world level or something. And it was just, you know, these cataclysmic, you know, all this stuff. But like when you think about 9-11 itself, would anybody have ever thought that's, no. that somebody would drive a plane into a building as an act like just that? Let alone three of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just the concept is just outrageous till it happens. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But I, I think you're I mean, I, I haven't heard that particular story, but it makes an awful lot of sense to me because it's it's the creative minds who are not tied to the to the norms the thinking that there's so much security around flying a plane it's so complex all the air traffic control no one could ever get away with that well bring in someone who knows nothing about any of those things and say what if i took something really big and flew it into a building you know maybe bad things would happen because they don't they don't feel constrained by what everyone else is constrained by but of course someone is eventually going to figure out ways to to beat those constraints just as as the you know the perpetrators of 9-11 did um, and, and I think that sounds like a great approach to trying to prevent against, you know, the unknown unknowns, as I think it was uh, Donald Rumsfeld who said, we've got known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns, and those are the scary ones. Well, those are the ones you need, these creative minds who are not constrained by traditional thinking to try and explore. And it can be used on the, on because obviously that's a very, you know, depressing example I, I threw out there, but it, it goes both ways too, like on the positive side, Kind of the funny one that I always think about is when Eddie Van Halen uh, with the tapping, tapping on a guitar neck, that style. Um, well, the reason I say that is because it actually was known. It was like a known technique, but the way that he did it and the fact like that's his signature, you know, then he just revolutionized the music industry in that sense where then all of a sudden it's like, oh, like, you know, tapping and shred metal and then, you know, and then it just kind of evolves, evolves till, you know, eventually goes down the line. And then that's it. anyway, but it's just funny, you know, it, it go, it does go both ways and, and you're oh, right. absolutely. creativity. And I think, you know, Elon Musk, whatever people think of him is an example of how it can be used for good in a way. I mean, this is an individual who will see a, a situation and say, I can do better against all other you know, naysayers. Who would ever think that starting with relatively little, you can go up and compete against these massive automakers to build something completely different? No one's ever been, no one's been able to do this before. How could you create a battery that could last long enough or be powerful enough to power a car? How could you go against the big automakers and the oil industry and all these things? And yet he just said, no, I, I think I can do it. And he tackled it. And sure, he meant he encountered lots of hurdles along the way, but you know, he, he's been successful and, and ignoring financial success, I would argue he really led a change. He led a change for the world for the better. I mean, there are far more electric vehicles on the road today because of what he decided was possible instead of just listening to everyone else saying, yeah, that's never going to work. Um, and, and, you know, he's done it in other ways too. He's, he's busy building a machine that can dig tunnels and, and pass 
train cars through magnetic levita levitation um, just to try and get them from place to place really quickly without polluting the skies with ozones and and pollutants and things like that. So you know he's he's a guy who who sees a problem and comes up with creative solutions. And happily now he has the financial backing to just go off and and play with billions and billions of dollars to see if he can make it happen. But that's not how it started, right? I mean he started as a as a guy with very little money and just just tried it and and got PayPal to work and then he made his first billion and didn't look back. He's a real life Bond villain, if you think about it. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wow, this guy's crazy. I know. Yeah, he definitely is crazy. Uh, and, and, you know, he may not be way, able I... to keep it up, but oh, well, good and bad way, I suspect. But but certainly I think the, the net effect is that he's, he's doing good things for the world and, and he's inspiring people and, and challenging others to really be better, not just settling for, for the way things always were, but challenging them to be to be better. And it's, it's so interesting. I'm actually, I've been, well, okay, I do a lot of reading and I kind of seem to be, I, I try to read a bunch of different stuff and I kind of just can't really help myself because I get distracted. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is interesting. But it's so funny, like just from a personal growth mindset, like if you're trying to do something, if you're trying to accomplish something uh, new, you have to think differently. If you're trying to go somewhere you've never been, you have to do things you've never done. It seems so obvious, <laughs> but in the execution side of it, I don't know. It's it's funny where I, I guess you have to have the determination side too, because you know a guy like that, where you know, like you said, insurmountable odds, it would seem, and then he yes. goes and does it. You know, hold my beer, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think there's an element of, of picking your battles. Uh, you know, you can't do that with everything. You can't. I would argue, you can't possibly challenge every single aspect of, of normal everyday life because it would be exhausting and you'd get nowhere. But if you, if you pick certain areas and really focus your attention and, and your intelligence and, and your research, you can perhaps have success there. And, and I think that's what, what some people are very able to do. They don't, they don't necessarily question everything. They just they pick a few really fundamental things and, and put their minds and, and energy behind trying to, trying to address those. But, but it must be a challenging personality type because I suspect if you're wired to do that, you probably can't help but do it all the time. And, and that must just drive you crazy, constantly thinking that things can be done better and yet not being able to devote the time to all of them. Um, that would certainly, that would drive me insane, I think. It, funny that you bring that up because what, with, um, are, are you familiar with uh, Jocko Willink? No. He's a Navy, former Navy SEAL and uh, author and leadership consultant, all this stuff. I highly recommend his books there. I think he's got like six of them out at this Interesting. Point. They're, they're all excellent and it's all uh, leadership and how that relates to business. And he talks about, you know, his time leading a platoon and all this stuff. But it's funny because I, I, I really enjoy his stuff and I listen to his podcast and all that. And it's funny because now anytime I watch like a TV show or just in everyday life, all I hear are like the leadership lessons. So I'm like, this guy ruined me because all I can hear are, are this is the content. <laughs> But well, maybe you'll look back and say he was uh, he was someone fundamental in shaping how you you know how you attack life. So maybe it's maybe it's for the better. I think so. I like to think yeah. so. <laughs> but, you know, and it's funny too. Like when the th with uh, the previous guest that I was talking to Paul Guerin, um, and he was saying like that synchronicity. Like when you think about where you were at a particular time and place, and then 
something happened or an opportunity presented itself or a challenge presented itself, you got knocked down. It's really interesting when you have that hindsight and you can look back and go, oh, like, of course I'm here now. Or, you know, you can even think about it from me. That that was the interesting thing when Trump was uh, like now that Biden is in, when people think, well, how could this happen? Like, you know, Trump, Trump, Trump. And it's like, but the problem with Trump started before he got there. It's, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't want to get into that, but it's low over my head of the American politics t- too much for me. But, um, but, you know, point being is just, it's so funny when people will see the conclusion or the end result and they focus all the attention on there, but you actually got to look back and go, what were the dominoes that, you know, tipped to get us to where we are? I imagine in your work too, like there must be, you Probably like, cause I guess if you're, well, you'll, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but if you're looking towards the future, wouldn't it be helpful? Or I would assume it would be quite critical to know how you ended up to where you are currently. Uh, yes. I think to a certain extent, you're right. Um, that people do definitely want to understand how things evolved the way they evolved and, and whether they can be done differently. Uh, the distinction I think I would draw is that in the actuarial community, I think a lot of that ends up being done by, by academics and researchers. I think the folks like me who are on what I'll call the front lines are relatively focused on trying to solve problems relatively quickly and efficiently because we're generally paid by the hour. So it, it's an interesting <laughs> conundrum where you wanna be essentially as quick as possible. You wanna solve problems quickly and that's not necessarily conducive to creativity. I mean, that doesn't mean we can't be creative, but, but the opportunity to be creative is, is somewhat limited. Uh, you're really looking for solutions you, you, you know, that are reliable, you know you can implement. Um, and so there is a certain amount of, of just deferring to what has, has been successful in the past, uh, just by the, the nature of the business environment. Uh, but academics and researchers are certainly not, are not so constrained. And so I, I agree with you that they're definitely out there trying to understand what shaped the past and, and how might that influence what we do in the future, you know, to, to either shape the future differently or to try to make the most of, of where we are today. It's a small window, but there's a window. <laughs> Absolutely. That's yeah, there's definitely at. a window. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Well, and with, well, let's go. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Let's go down the communications lane. The difference between a podcast and an interview is that an interview is I'm going to ask you a question you're going to answer. And then, that's done. And then it's the new question, blah, blah, blah. You just keep going down. But a podcast is conversational. And so I always say to people, well, what would you do if you were at a restaurant and you meet a friend and they bring someone you've never met before? Well, what are you going to do? You're going to whip out a piece of paper and write down questions for them. But that's because, and it forces you to develop listening skills, which requires that the mouth is closed and both ears are open. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I think it also either encourages or requires confidence because you have to go into the situation trusting that you're going to make this happen, right? That it's not going to be a disaster. As we said, I think before you started recording, you don't want to sound like an idiot. And that's what we all worry about. Um, I, and it's funny because not, to, not that everything has to come back to, uh, to what I do for a living, but there are points in my career where I know I was very driven, you know, especially early on when you first start presenting results to clients. I was very driven by what was on the page that I had to talk about uh, because I've got these six bullets or these, these five different numerical results that I need to get through. And I remember after the very first time I delivered 
actuarial results to a client. Um, I was with a, a much more senior um, partner for whom I had a tremendous amount of respect. And he was extremely supportive, but his, his one sort of comment on the drive home back to the office was, you really wanted to get through that deck, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was, you know, he was gentle about it, but his point was, it didn't seem to matter what the client was talking about. I was determined just to get through these 12 numbers that I knew I needed to tell him that I assumed he wanted to hear. And, and over my career, I think that that's evolved a long way. And, and, you know, a lot of consultants need to get there where they're much more comfortable just knowing that, yes, they have the information to back up if the client wants to go there, but that the client may want to go somewhere else. The numbers you calculated may not be at all what they're asking you. They may have sounded like that's what they were asking you for, but once you actually start the conversation going, it turns out you would have preferred to have done a whole different set of analysis that you now don't have. So you just have to trust your experience. You have to trust your ability to think on the fly um, and know that they're probably not going to fire you if you say, okay, well, we're going to go back and do a bit more math for you and, uh, and let's have another meeting. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is a real challenge and you can't you can't go in thinking it's going to go exactly where you expect it to go. You have to be flexible. You have to be malleable and, and think on your feet. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that makes consultants successful is when they're, when they're very good at that. Um, and I will admit, you know, I don't think my listening skills are, are where they perhaps could be. Uh, I think I'm a lot better than I used to be. Um, but I used to be, you know, they, they give examples of, of, examples of bad listening skills and they, you know, the types of symptoms you need to look for. Are you already thinking of the answer before the person has stopped talking because you've stopped listening? And, you know, I could, I could witness myself doing this in my head thinking, okay, I heard question part A, I've developed my answer and I'm ready to go now. I haven't heard parts B, C, or D yet. And it turns out the D was really the clincher and I've missed the key. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's something I work on over the years, but 27 years in, I'm still not perfect, but um, I, I'm sure that's, that's a challenge that you faced that I suspect you would have been um, finding more challenging with your first podcast, you know, going in and, and when you were saying with, with few exceptions, you don't generally come with lists of questions. I immediately thought to myself, I wonder if your first couple were ones where you had lists of questions or if they were just people that you were so comfortable with that it didn't matter. But, but I can imagine if I were doing podcasts, the first few, I would have very specific questions on standby, even if I didn't need them. And then I would get more comfortable just trusting the process and trusting that when people, you know, I was going to say, sit opposite you, sit, sit across from Zoom, yeah. they're comfortable being forthright and just engaging you in a conversation and, and they're not worried about where it goes either. So, you know, you don't need to be, it can, it can go wherever it goes. Well, to answer that, I'll say I actually, for the first, we'll say half dozen, uh, the preparation was as minimal as minimal could get. So virtually no preparation. And Interesting. My, and my first guest was a professor of mine, but I had pretty much no relationship with them at the time. So it was basically like talking to a stranger, essentially. Like I knew who he was, he, you know, I he taught me in the class and blah, blah, blah. But, and the, the reason behind that was instinct, just go on instinct because, and it's funny, like when you look back and you, and personalities are different too, but when it comes to that type of, like this type of method of communication through a podcast, um, I think the emphasis was on the anxiety was so great that my solution was just go with it. Just go with it. Just surrender to it. And you know what? If it's crap, it's crap. That's okay. Like, so I think you just also have to get used to that. And 
who is I actually uh, on uh, Neil Strauss is a author. He was the one who wrote, well, he's wrote a, a bunch of books. So one of them was Motley Crue's biography, The Dirt. And then that became the Netflix uh, bio drama or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, but he's a, he's a very interesting dude. And one of the, th he was talking about writer's block and he said, writer's block isn't actually writer's block. It's performance anxiety disguised as something else. Because what you're worried about is not necessarily the words that you're going to write. You're worried about the, how your words are going to be received after they're written. And I think students, well, you know, even in high school, like anyone who's ever been a student, I think can understand that, which is if you're worried about the result that you're going to get, and there's a bit of that self-fulfilling prophecy in there too, because then you're going to be more stressed, more anxious. Oh no, is this good enough? You're going to second guess yourself. And then all of a sudden you're just this big ball of confusion and anxiety and then who knows what happens after that. But it, it's funny that, that we get so wrapped up in what if, and just uh, that, but just, just go with it. Just, you know, learn from it. And, but you're right. It, there is an, uh, there is an element of, of confidence in that because to surrender or I don't really like to say to surrender, but to just kind of go with the flow to ride that wave, you do have to have a bit of confidence or at least a bit of assurance knowing that it will be okay in the end. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, initially I was catching myself thinking, well, but at least you're in control of it. So if it's a disaster, you just don't publish it. But actually that's not the real, I think, uh, issue of embarrassment. It's not publishing it and having people you never interact with <laughs> witnessing your embarrassment. It's actually the live interview uh, or the live discussion that I think is is mortifying for humans, you know, to be in the midst of a conversation that isn't going where they want it to go and they have no idea how to how to fix it. Uh, I think that's that's the the crushing fear that most people would have. So so good for you. You're probably uh, probably catching on that that maturity, that that independence and confidence uh, much sooner than I did. That's for sure. <laughs> I threw myself into the deep end. That's how I did. <laughs> well, it's a good approach, I guess. It's it's obviously worked. And. And actually, I want to, um, the thing that I, when you were talking about um, with your, uh, with your client, like one of your first ones, um, the, the thing that I was thinking, it, it almost directly mirrored um, when you're in court. So the, I've been, I was fortunate enough to do the, uh, at the University of Surrey in year uh, two and three. So it's a three-year degree, so my third was final year. But in year two and three, I was fortunate enough to do the uh, mock trial competition. Mm -hmm. And it was a really great experience. I, I had a great time. And it was very funny because the first, so year two, the, we did, uh, we competed twice. And then in third year, I believe we competed once and then COVID hit. So then it kind of shut everything down, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing... Uh, the, the, the second, so in third year, just a disaster. I mean, my performance was, I would consider disastrous. It, it was, it, thank goodness for my partner. Um, Cause she, you know, shit, if it wasn't for she her. She carried the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, man, I dropped the ball big time, but the, the, with the first go around for the first two, it was with a friend of mine. So my partner was someone that I knew well. And the great thing was that we, had no experience. That was our first time doing it. And luckily 
I had a year on her and then I also spent a little bit of time in a Canadian court here observing and stuff. So I, I had a minuscule experience, but something's better than nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> and it kind of ties back to this and uh, like the podcast and what you were saying with your client, which was you, if you're thinking of what you're going to say next, you've stopped listening and in the time that you've stopped listening to when you get to speak, particularly if it's a, uh, um, if especially for cross examination on the stand, man, you could have missed <laughs> the thing that's going to make your break your case. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I imagine for you, like going through that, like that was a pretty soft approach actually for him to say, man, you just really wanted to get through that list. <laughs> That's a, I got respect for that. That's a good It was a very soft approach. I mean, I think it's a little less dire than, than courtroom drama because at least we, you know, we get another chance to, to meet with the client and, and, you know, do it slightly differently. So it's not the end of the world. Whereas if you're, if your client is found guilty or, or not guilty, I suppose it can, it can, you know, shape the, shape the future in a way that you hadn't, hadn't wanted to happen. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting you know, skill set listening and, and being able to adapt on the fly and having the confidence to just go with things. Um, but if, if you can, if you can get there, it, it sure is helpful. And the other thing with what you said was that, um, like, oh, okay, you know, we'll do this for you. And yeah, we'll, we'll come back. We'll, we'll run some more numbers and we'll come back. That, is that something, because I think, and you pointed that out, which is, I think a lot of people have this idea of like, it's done, it's done. But I think having that ability, particularly with uh, dealing with clients, and I don't know, I'm not a professional yet, but from what I've observed and read, it seems like pretty much any profession you can come back and go, okay, actually, you know, I don't really know. I just don't really know right now, but I'll tell you what, give me the opportunity. I will go back. I'll do whatever I need to do. And I'll come back and let you know exactly what you need to know. That's an excellent, I mean, just in life in general too. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah. Well, and I think it's essential for building trust. I mean, if you feel like you have to always have the answer, you know, you're not <laughs> going to always have the answer, which means you're going to have to guess. If, if you insist on giving something and, and a number of those guesses are going to be wrong and, and a number of times you're going to get caught out. So far better to just acknowledge, I'm not sure, but I will find out and get back to you and, and take some time to do some research. And, and I mean, very rare is a situation where someone absolutely needs the answer on the spot. There's almost always time, even in today's, you know, instant gratification world, there's almost always time to, to go back and, and figure it out. But it's interesting because I think as, as professionals, um, actuaries, and, and I'm sure many others go through this cycle where at the beginning, they feel like, well, accurately, they assess that they don't know anything. Um, and that's quite daunting. And then they, they learn more and more without really realizing how much they've learned and not realizing that actually now they're very useful to clients because they've, they've quickly learned a lot more than most of our clients know in admittedly a very narrow area. But nevertheless, it's an area that our clients are paying us to know about. And, and it's only at that point that you start to get comfortable enough realizing, okay, I, I think I do actually know enough. I don't need to second guess my ability as a professional. If they ask a question that I don't know the answer to, it's okay to just say that. They're not going to likely lose confidence in me. They're not going to suddenly assume that I'm unprofessional or, or, or inept. They're just going to assume that this is a unique situation that you need to look into. And, and it's, it's really is, as I said, it's critical for building trust because if clients think that you're going to guess, they will fear that you're doing that all the time and they don't know when to when to trust you whereas if they know you're willing to say i don't know the answer uh then they're a lot more likely to trust you when you claim to know the answer 
So that, that's certainly been, been my approach is, is to admit I, I've been doing this long enough that I have enough confidence over the years to, to know what I know and know what I don't know and feel confident that I know enough that clients aren't going to complain if I have to say, uh, I don't know, we'll, we'll get back to you. And generally speaking, it does seem like people have a decent enough bullshit meter to understand, like, I think, this, you know, I've, it, you get a lot, and as, as it relates to trust, you get a lot more credit if you can just say, you know what, I'm not sure, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to go figure it out for you and I'll get back to you, you know, whatever, immediately kind of thing versus, yeah. uh, and just pulling something out of nowhere, maybe it's right, you know, maybe you get lucky and it ends up being right, but it doesn't really matter. You actually just end up looking and then, and then your customer, your client goes like, man, are they doing this all the time? Is this, a <laughs> you know, like, oof. You, know, you can get in a bit of trouble. <laughs> no, absolutely. You're, you're right. And I, I think you're also right that people are, are more perceptive than we give them credit for. And if you've just answered the previous four questions very confidently, very, you know, very immediately, very concisely, and the fifth question, you're meandering, you're pausing, you're kind of going in different directions, they're going to figure out that, okay, this is not a question this fellow has, has seen before because he, he's not spouting off an answer the way he did before. Uh, I wonder how much I can trust this. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, and you know, it, you, you've made me think of something slightly off topic, but, but relating to trust, one of the things that we spend a lot of time trying to convince younger actuaries of is that everything counts when you're delivering material to a client. <clears throat> we spend so much time worrying about the, the numbers that in actual fact are the one thing the client can't replicate. They don't have the skill set to validate the numbers but they can sure figure out whether you've spelt their company name correctly or whether you've got three page fours in your deck. Like it's dumb little things like that, that clients will see and think, okay, if they can't even figure out that page numbers are supposed to go, you know, in order increasing, are we sure that they can figure out this complex math? And, and, and initially actuaries or actuarial students are, are quick to focus very much on the very technical aspects and not realize that you, you lose a client's trust in many other ways as well that you're not even paying attention to. And, and so the, your scope of review as you advance in your career, and I'm sure this isn't, isn't unique to my profession, but the scope of what you review expands dramatically because you realize what you want is for the well, I was going to say you want for the client not to see anything wrong. I need to be careful. We also want the actual numbers to be right, even if they can't <laughs> tell you that they're wrong. Um, but but it's important that they see everything else as being right as well. Um, and and it sometimes takes people a while to to get their heads around that and realize that it's not just it's not enough to have the math right. You have to have the math right, but you also have to have all these other things right. And and that takes some time to to learn. And that comes back to that that trust because you can lose trust very quickly in things that feel silly. And I've worked, with, I've worked with consultants who will sit in client meetings and say, oh, sorry, I didn't mean less, I meant more there, but you can tell from the numbers or, oh yeah, sorry, we got the name wrong there, or there seems to be a word missing. And I, I just, I cringe. I think, okay, if, if this is the quality that's going into the, to the words, the, the presentation, what are they thinking about the quality of the stuff that they can't see, which is all the analysis we did back in the office. My brother, he... <clears throat> We'll get too involved in the details, but there is someone presented him a business uh, an investment um, package or something like that. Um, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but some dude had a business that wanted investments and my brother got a package. So um, he gave it to me to read it. I don't really know what he was thinking I was going to do with it. It's like, I, I graduated, but like, 
you know, you really should, you know, don't be giving anybody money on my word, you know, <laughs> but anyway, so I was looking at this. Vote of trust though and confidence. That's right. Yeah. I appreciate it. Good job. And uh, <laughs> I was reading it and funny that you say that because it was exactly things like that. I noticed um, the, and I'm, uh, and I'm definitely one of these people that, like you pointed out, those little details speak volumes to me because it, it's, there's a, if I'm going to invest in, like just generally speaking, if, if I'm going to hire someone as a lawyer or I'm going to invest in someone's company, or I'm going to hire, go with a particular actuary or their firm, I, those little details are going to be the loudest to me because, and for that specific example, the sub uh, headings two of them. So there was two on a page and the first one had a colon and the second one didn't. And then you go on to like, it was about a 20 page document or 20 page uh, binder and kind of the same thing. Like there was missed comma here or there were um, two spaces instead of one space. And it's like, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a dollar like, and this is where I can, I guess this is my personality. I'm not going to give you $1 of my money. Look at it. Something like that going, those little details are off, let alone, you know, 10,000, 20,000, yeah. like, because I'm, I have to have my trust in you and I have to trust that you're going to do your job to the best of your ability. You can't even run a spell check on a, on a Microsoft <laughs> word. <laughs> yes. Or for something as important as starting a business, get someone else to read a document for consistency, things like that. No, I agree. It really does speak to someone's, someone's you know, level of attention to detail and, and how committed they are to quality. And, and if, if they're looking for people to, I mean, invest in them in a big way or just invest as a customer, you know, you're going somewhere for dinner or you're buying a product from them, um, especially early days, right? I mean, you have no reputation on which to base to base people's trust and, and all they have is what they see. It's gotta be, it's gotta be bang on. And, and maybe one day, you know, Apple can get away with, with a bit of an oops every now and then, but, but, you know, new businesses are not Apple and, and they have to earn that from, from their, their clients and, and potential clients. Uh, and even when I communicate with guests, it's really funny because when I, my texting is like, I'm, I'm notorious for horrible, uh, like, what do you call them? Uh, like, if it's like, don't, there's no apostrophe. It's just, you know, whatever, right? It's just red underlined through my entire text and 50 emojis and all that stuff. It's just a disaster. So it's very funny. Like when I am talking to guests or like email or text and I look at what I'm writing, I'm like, oh God, I got to be professional. You know, <laughs> I got to clean it up, you know, <laughs> but because that's the thing, you know, I, why would I expect somebody to invest their time in a conversation with me, if I can't even invest the time to appear professional. <laughs> yeah, although it's interesting you say that because I, I think, you know, one of the things I've heard communication experts talk about uh, in terms of communicating important ideas is meet people where they are. And so I think you're bang on. If you're communicating with me, I'm a generation that, that lived 75% of my life, 80% of my life without texting. So I like full sentences. I like punctuation. I like the full word to be spelt out, all of these things. But your generation and, and you know, my son, uh, that's not, they don't see that as a, as a poor quality. They see that as actually how you text. Um, and, and so to them, they very, 
from all, for all I know, they may very well not evaluate you harshly on that, um, whereas I might. And, and you know, that's, that's a silly example, but I think it, it speaks to the fact that you have to at least know your audience. So figure out if you're speaking to someone who, who's doing that back to you, maybe that's, that's fine. They're happy with the, the three-letter words, you know, just cut out all the vowels and, and that's your text. Um, others, others might expect a little bit more. I text like it's an email. So, you know, <laughs> hi, Marcus, how are you today? Question mark, paragraph, space. What a great day we're having. You know, that, that's how I text. It's, it's three screens long. Takes me forever. The little dots are flashing at your end for, for six or seven minutes. Um, and so, uh, you know, people will, will cue off that and I guess uh, read into that what they will. <laughs> but it's important. And, and that's the thing. Like, I, you hear that with comedians all the time particularly comedians is know your audience there's certain material and especially now i guess it it gets a little more convoluted just because everybody is so sensitive about literally everything everything yeah anything. so but that's the thing like you, you're not going to go to a university campus and you know talk about certain well most of them don't even just go to university campuses anymore because they're just all too sensitive but it, it's so yeah and that and for you, like in your line of work, it must be so critical to know who you're meeting and are you meeting with someone who's maybe more of a junior, um, like a junior representative of your client or they're more senior, like, so your approach may be slightly different and it may not even be noticeable to anyone observing, but to you, because you're delivering the message, you'll kind of understand that. Yes, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Although I will also acknowledge, I don't think I change my behavior as much as others might, uh, for good or for bad. It's just it's just who I am. But the the classic example in in my realm is that we frequently deal with two very different sides of corporate houses. We deal a lot with human resources, and we deal a lot with finance. And and at the risk of pigeonholing people, you will generally find that human resources people, because of the fact that they've been drawn to that, are more about some of the softer skills. They're, they're, helping, they're hoping to engage people. They, they want people to feel good about coming to work every day. They want people to be um, really committed to the success of the organization, you know, all these sorts of ideas. On the finance side, these are generally numbers people. You know, these are accountants or engineers, whatever it happens to be. But they're very analytical and focused people who may be a little less concerned about saying the right words or, or whether an employee is going to feel extra peppy that day because of some change they're contemplating. And it does make a big difference in, in how you... I don't know, as I said, I don't know that I necessarily present differently, but we might take different approaches. So with, with human resources, we may focus more on some of the, the employee relationship side of things, whereas with finance, you're going to perhaps focus a lot more on the analytical or data-driven results to, to get your case across. And you may be looking to accomplish the same thing. You know, in both cases, you may think that option B is better for the client than option A. And so you're hoping to impart that on them so that they can, they can see the light, if you will. Um, but you'll do so in different ways. Uh, yes, absolutely. That, that's, that's a, a, in fact, there isn't a consulting school, you know, that you can go to school, quote unquote, consulting course that you can go to that doesn't talk about the distinction between HR and finance. Um, those are, those are real, real sort of a line in the sand in terms of presenting information differently, communicating differently. Um, but also I, I agree that generational uh, differences exist. Uh, I think it's, it's 
perhaps less noticeable for me because I'm now that I've been doing this for longer, the people I'm dealing with have generally been doing this for longer, which means they're generally, you know, roughly my generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but but over time, that may change. I mean, if I if I keep doing this, I'm doing this when I'm 60, there are going to be plenty of people 20 years younger than me who are very successful and, and in very senior roles, and they may view communication styles very differently than I do. Um, and, and for younger people who move through the ranks very quickly, they may find themselves getting ahead of themselves where they think texting is fine or really curt emails because that's just, you know, people understand my facial expression. I don't need to put a little smiley face to show, whereas I'm all about the emojis. Um, and, and so they may, you know, they may misstep because they, they've skipped a generation in communication. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. I mean, especially with this virtual world, it's so much harder to build those relationships and, and let people know what you're thinking um, when you're doing it. I mean, even, even Zoom is, is difficult, although at least you're, you're getting immediate interaction. You can see the person's facial expression and, and whether they're paying attention, all these sorts of things. Um, but it, it's a lot harder than doing it live, that's for sure. People can multitask without, without necessarily showing it. You know, it, it looks like I'm looking at you, but really I'm playing solitaire on this screen and the camera's up, you know, whatever. It, people can get away with it. Maybe not as much as they think they can, but, but they can get away with it, um, which, which makes it extra challenging for, for reading those visual and, and interaction, you know, social cues. It's amazing. I think a lot of people um, have become a lot more aware of how much information they're missing when it comes to uh, communicating, uh, communicating with people in person, because and I think this number gets disputed a little bit where it's like, I don't know, I, I've heard anywhere from like 60 to 80 or 60 to 85 of communications nonverbal. And yeah, whatever, that range seems fair enough. I actually think it's more on the high end, depending, I guess it depends on where you focus your attention to, but I guess that's more on the observer rather than the uh, you know communicator. But yeah, it, it is kind of, you know, Zoom does get the job done, but you really do miss on the, I mean, just the little things, noticing someone shifting in their seat, you know, like, okay, like if you're presenting, um, so for you, is it uh, when you, uh, before the COVID, um, how many people would you present to, like, as far as clients are concerned? Like, would it be uh, pretty standard to talk to multiple people at once? Or is it mostly one-on-one? Uh, no, it, it's pretty common to have more than one person in the room. Um, with, with most meetings, I would say it can vary from two to 12, you know, depending on the, the nature of the meeting. Um, I've communicated in different areas by, by leading training sessions where you can have 100 or more in the room, but I, I wouldn't say that's not the same. It's not two-way communication. It's really one way. They're, they're, they're there to receive, uh, but, but meetings where it's two-way, I, I would say typically is between two and 12, something like that. Reason I'm bringing that up is because for you, you must notice, now I guess you've been doing the Zoom stuff since like 13, like March of last year. Yeah. 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 And have you noticed for yourself that it's now, okay, so I'll give you a frame it like this with existing clients. Have you noticed a, a maybe um, more difficult for you to communicate with them and with same question, but with new clients? Um, with existing clients, I found it went fine. Because as you, as you were sort of alluding to, you know them, you've got that rapport already there. It's just a matter of maintaining it. I was fearful that it would be very challenging with new clients, but by, by sheer coincidence, I happened to have, 
it wasn't exactly a new client, but but through acquisition, all the people we were dealing with for that organization changed, and and it moved from a Vancouver head office to a Denver head office, and so I started dealing with all these people who didn't know me, and I was quite worried that not that the core communication would get lost in in translation, but that I would, my personality would get lost in translation, and and I mentioned earlier, you know, we we like to build long term relationships. We're really hoping the way I describe it to, to younger consultants is if they like you, they're not going to want to fire you. They're going to want to keep working with you. And it's fine to say, I, I work, the, the company I work for is a global company. We have tens of thousands of employees around the world. It's fine to say that they're hiring that company and, and all the resources that it, that it brings. But I don't know the, the ratio, but, but a lot of it is they're hiring me. I mean, they're, they're trusting me because I'm the one who shows up the meetings. I'm the one who communicates the information. They're trusting that I've gotten them the information correct, that I'm able to communicate it in a way that aligns with what they want to hear, either concisely enough or clearly enough or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, and, and so you, you really do invest in that one-on-one -on -one relationship with, even, even if it's 12 people in the room, it, it's 12 one-on-one -on -one relationships, but you want each of them to appreciate what you bring. And, and I was worried that that would be much more difficult over Zoom or Teams or Google Meets or whatever the platform happens to be. I'm pleased to say it, it didn't seem to be. I mean, at least in that one instance, it's, it's not a huge sample size. In fact, it's the smallest sample size you can have and still call the sample. <laughs> but um, in that one case, it seemed to work fine, actually. Um, it's certainly easier with smaller groups. You know, if you, if you have 10 on the phone, you're not going to, even in Zoom, you know, you're not necessarily going to be able to see and certainly not focus on all of them. Um, sometimes people will turn their camera off and you're not really sure what that means. Um, but, but for the most part, it, it's been small enough groups that it's actually been okay. And I feel as though my personality has been able to come through. Now, to be very clear, that doesn't necessarily, that isn't necessarily a recipe for success. My personality may grate on some people, but, but in general, I've been fortunate enough that it, it seems to work reasonably well. And, and in this particular instance, it seems to have worked well as well. And, and I've been able to build pandemic trust, if you will, um, <laughs> over, over Zoom. And, and in fact, maybe it's even better because as I mentioned there, they relocated to Denver. And while I, I certainly in the olden days traveled a reasonable amount for work so that I would have likely gone down to Denver a couple of times over, over the year, I certainly wouldn't be seeing them face to face as often as I, as I am able to now, because every week we're meeting through Zoom. Um, and, and so in a way, it's actually been better in, in certain circumstances. Uh, but with, with challenging you know, implications, you have, to, you have to work harder to keep people's attention. Um, you have to be willing to accept that they may choose to multitask. And you know, we're kidding ourselves when we say multitask, really, that means they're not paying attention to something. Um, and some of the time, that's going to be me. Um, and you move on, but, but hope that there are enough positives to outweigh those negatives. Pandemic trust. I like that. That, but it's true. That's the funny thing. It's like, man, you know, it's, man, it, nah. I know I'm thinking about so many things right now, but yeah, it, it's interesting how now for your profession, do you, cause I, I mean, it seems like, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but you know, we're going to be getting out of this at some point in time. looks like it, it's not, you know, I think we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel right now, but again, I don't want to, jinx anything want to jinx it yeah yeah but um do you anticipate speaking of future futurists right <laughs> do you anticipate um that it will kind of once we get out of this will there be any type of um residual effect from the way that uh business dealings were done during covid time in a good or bad way i suppose 
Well, and then my response was going to be, I sure hope so, which is an indication that I, I think there's a lot of good to be to be garnered out of this experience. Um, my kids and I were watching a show on, I think it was Apple Plus, but uh, hosted by David Attenborough, and it, it, I think it's called The Day the World, The Year the World Changed, and just talking about all the good things that have happened in nature because of the pandemic, and clearly there have been a lot of awful things because of the pandemic, and I don't want to, um, you know, discard those, but there have been good things as well, and so I hope we're able to turn things down or turn things off. I mean, I don't need to be going to Denver three times a year and, and incurring the pollution associated with that trip. I like it. I like to travel. I find it interesting to see other places. I do enjoy seeing people face to face, you know, eating in, in restaurants and other places, staying in hotels, all these things. But, you know, I have to acknowledge that that's taking its toll on, on the planet. Um, and so I, I hope that business is able to maintain a lot of the wins we've, we've earned over the last year without all the negativity. I mean, I hope people are able to go back to socializing and, and especially the people who are more isolated, that they're able to rebuild their community and, and feel like they belong and have, have shoulders to cry on and, and you know, people to, to lean on. Um, but I, I hope in many ways that we do adjust. And, and you know, I, I think there are lots of potential wins. Vancouver is an extremely expensive city to live in and it's discouraging people from moving here. We're having trouble recruiting people because they, you know, young people think, well, I'm never going to be able to afford anything in Vancouver, forget it. And yet the, the pandemic eases that a little bit because people can live in Maple Ridge or Chilliwack and work down in a downtown office just as easily as if they were living in Yale town. And that used not to be the case. I mean, we used to be an office where generally 90% of people would show up every day for work. Um, and so there, there are positives coming out of that as well. And so it, it may make the world a, a slightly more livable place for at least a moderate segment of the workforce. But with that come other challenges. Uh, we've had to work very hard to keep connected. So when I was in an office, we had a, what we call an agile workspace, you know, open office environment, you don't have a dedicated desk, you show up one day and decide where it is, you're going to plunk your stuff down. And, and then you work there for the day, it would mean I would be surrounded by different people every day. And I would see almost everyone just coming and going as they would move around the office space. So the interaction I would have would be with, let's call it 70% of the people in the office that day. Now I'm dealing with maybe 7% of the people in the office that day because I have the, the teams I work with and I, I, I'm Zooming or Teamsing with them lots, but I'm not seeing anyone else. And in fact, I realized the other day, um, people I used to regularly sit next to, I had completely forgotten their names after 13 months. And yet, you know, for two years, we would talk regularly every day. And, and just because I have no business interaction, um, I, I haven't reached out more than an email or two, but, but obviously not enough to remember names. Um, and so we'll need to figure out things ways to fix that i think um and and hopefully there's a happy median you know maybe you have one day in the one day a week where everyone agrees to come into the office or or two days a week where half the people agree to come in so you do still have that that community building that that social well-being aspect if you will um and yet without the need to always commute um and in, you know clog up pollution clog up the streets uh, you know for the people who do have to drive to work it's a lot more convenient i mean my wife your dad they have to be at the hospital every day um and it's convenient that that traffic is not nearly as bad as it used to be because people like me are able to work from home happily so there are lots of positives that i hope will last and and some negatives that we'll have to keep working on to, to make sure we can resolve um, because it, again, it's easy for me. I have a family. I have I have neighbors that I can sort of yell out, yell out over the fence. I, I have that social interaction. But there are plenty of people who don't, um, and for them, the pandemic has been very, very difficult, and and they're just looking for any excuse to to go back to the old way. Um, and and I'm hoping we can get the best of both worlds. I'll close it off with um, with this question, which is, 
just generally speaking, whether it's for someone who wants to go into uh, the, the actuary profession or just any profession, because you and how old are your kids now? Because they're coming near the end of high 13 school. 13 and 17, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so one's getting there. And yeah, yeah luckily you got, yeah, a little while for the, for the younger one. The other one, that's right. Yeah, but just in general, like what would be, from, from your experiences in your job and, and just life in general, what would be for, for someone who's, especially with the pandemic going to be kind of coming to a close, hopefully shortly, um, what, I don't like asking what advice would you give, but what perspective can you highlight for someone who's going to then go into whatever profession that it may be as far as just skills and development and anything related to that? That's, that's a really intriguing question. Um, I, I think two things leap immediately to mind. The first, and I'm going to sound a bit dad-like here, but the first is advice that I, I gave to my older son over the years. And it took me a while to land there. You know, he's the first kid, so you're, you're still learning. But um, so he would, yeah, exactly. He would, you know, I, I would say it's important to learn math because once you've got the basics, everything else builds on that. So if you're not comfortable with arithmetic or these basic concepts, it's gonna make everything else much harder. So I really tried to emphasize the importance of math. Um, and then I tried to emphasize the importance of, I don't know, science or, or music or gym or whatever it happens to be. And then at one point I, I pulled them aside and I said, I know I say this a lot, but this time I really mean it. There is nothing that can't help you be successful more than good communication doesn't matter what you choose to do for a living. If it's being an artist, if it's being a scientist, if it's being an athlete, anything you can hope to do with yourself, if you have strong communication skills, it will help you be better at that. Your art won't necessarily be better, but you'll be ever better able to communicate that art or you'll be better able to sell that art so you can actually make a living off it. Whatever it is, you'll be better able to, to you know, be successful at it. And, and I, I really believe that. And it's been a few years. So I've had a few opportunities to revise that again. And I, I haven't, I've stuck with it. I, I really do think communication is absolutely critical in, in this world. Um, and, and it's not just verbal, you know, written communication, but, but communication skills are, are of paramount importance. The other thing I would say, uh, particularly perhaps to people choosing to pursue a profession as actuaries, I would say you need to be open to change. What, what I'm doing today is very different than what people at my level were doing when, when I started. And, and that's been fine. I, it, it didn't bother me because I wasn't so married to doing what they did you know, in, in the mid-90s uh, as being my, my aspiration. But you have to be willing to be flexible. And I think there, this could be a whole other podcast, but, but for reasons that are neither here nor there, there is less and less need in the traditional sense for actuaries in this world. And so a lot, of, a lot of high school students and university students are choosing not to pursue this as a profession. And my, my commentary to high school students when I'm, when I'm asked to, to chat to them or, or you know, someone has a, has a nephew or niece that they, they want me to talk to them about, I, I always say I have absolutely no qualms about recommending um, the actuarial profession as a future, but you have to go into it knowing that what you think you may be getting into will evolve. 
but what I what I stand by is that actuaries are generally highly regarded as being analytical people who are who are capable of assessing a situation and, and figuring out you know weighing the alternatives and and evaluating it from a logical analytical perspective, and that I think will always be a useful skill set at least until we get artificial intelligence to take over the world and then we have real issues. Um, and and so I think they you know people who are wired to do that well and who have the communication skills that I told my son he needs. Um, I think they can be very successful in the actuarial space, but don't go in assuming that you're going to become a, an actuary who works only with defined benefit pension plans and that you're going to do that for the 40 years of your career, because I can almost guarantee that that won't be the case. But if you start, you'll pick up a skill set that will really serve you well, and you can go into other areas. And, and I mean, as I mentioned, I happen to work for a very large organization where my particular area of expertise is a, is, it's not a small, but it's, it's only a subset of what my firm does. So if I can be successful in other ways, in communication and managing relationships in, in conveying ideas, it doesn't really matter if people become less interested in the actual math I used to be able to do behind the scenes. Hopefully I can still do, but don't need too much. Um, and I can translate that to other skill sets. And, and people just need to be open-minded enough and flexible enough and, and willing to allow themselves to evolve as the world around them evolves. And I think they can be very successful. Those would be my two pieces of advice. That's excellent. I, got, I have nothing to add because I don't think I can top that. So that's excellent. So I think we'll just close it off there. That was uh, well said. And I certainly have a lot to think about now too, which is fantastic. I always try, I, you know, I find if I find, um, if it makes me think, then translates elsewhere too. So that's always, that's always something, but. Um, thank well, thanks you. very much, Marcus. It was, it was a pleasure. I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I wasn't sure uh, how, how easily it would, it would flow. And, and it was, it was, a, it was a lot of fun for me too. So you're, you're a very thoughtful person. It was a very interesting uh, process. So thanks for, uh, thanks for coaching me through my, my first podcast. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day.